Production. Rich Roll's work tells a story that is deeper and more multidimensional than the nutrition and health information most of us learned in school. A writer, vegan ultra-endurance athlete and activist, he's grown wise through his work on healthy living. As a recovering drug and alcohol addict, he dances with the experience we all have, that life never goes as planned and yet the choices we make can matter. Rich says at the end of the day there is nothing but the journey because destination is pure illusion. In this intimate conversation, Rich and I discuss his dark days of addiction, finding purpose and the importance of service. It requires you to understand that the universe is infinitely abundant, that it can be a win-win situation for everybody and you giving is not taking away from what you will get. And my experience is just that when you can live in that mindset, the things that tend to trip us up end up getting resolved. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Rich Roll is the best-selling author of many books, including Finding Ultra, The Plant Power Way, and his newest book, Voicing Change. He's also the host of the podcast, The Rich Roll Podcast. Rich joins me for a conversation that is heartfelt, deep, kind, enlightening, and down-to-earth all at once. It was refreshing and inspiring spending time with a fellow podcaster. My hope is that this conversation allows you to wake up to the notion that we all have the ability to shape our own destinies. All you need is a little faith and a lot of love. Rich, you have had such an unbelievably colourful life, a fascinating, fascinating life journey. But I want you to tell us a bit about how it all began. You have said before that you were were an awkward child. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, my memories, it's not that I had a terrible childhood, but... I was a kid who always sort of felt out of step with everyone else. And I definitely struggled with trying to connect with other kids and always felt on the outside, like everyone else had the rule book for life that I lacked. Um, and, and you know, it left me kind of as a loner um, and I kind of resorted to being bookish and, and to myself. Uh, and it wasn't until many, many years later that I realized the connection between that disposition and those tendencies and its relationship to, you know, my unhealthy relationship <laughs> with alcohol and kind of everything that unraveled as a result of that. But yeah, I was definitely awkward. I certainly wasn't a kid who anybody looked at and said, that guy's going to be an athlete. I mean, that's for sure. I was hopeless with anything having to do with eye-hand coordination. Um, but at a young age, I did show some promise in the pool and I kind of gravitated towards the swimming pool, not only because <clears throat> I had a little bit of success as a young kid there, but it was almost like this safe place, this safe space where I could find my own community outside of school. 
um, and uh, away from you know some of the bullying and and the marginalization that 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 I was feeling at the time. Uh, and when your head's underwater, you know it's a nice soothing way to block out the world and whatever pain you're struggling to process in your young developing mind. So you went on to be a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer for a period of time. How did you get into that? Well, I, my interest in, in film was sparked shortly after college. I was working in New York City in a law firm as a paralegal and I would walk down the street and see streets cordoned off and these gigantic sets and movies and television shows being filmed. And I was just enraptured by that. I'd never seen anything like that growing up. And I just was riveted, fascinated by the mechanics of of production. And I would stop on the street corner and literally watch for hours. You know, my friends would be like, you know, this is boring. Come on, let's go. And I'd be like, no, I want to see this. And that kind of ignited an interest and a passion for the creative process. Um, I ended up doing uh, a program at NYU on filmmaking and I PA'd a movie. Ultimately, I went to law school, but in the back of my mind, I, you know, I had this you know, affinity for that world and I wanted to find my way into it on some level. Um, and it took a couple of years. I was a practicing attorney up in San Francisco doing like labor and employment law, but I was able to get a job at a firm in Los Angeles that was doing entertainment litigation, which was like one step closer to what I was interested in. So that's what brought me down to Los Angeles back in 1996. And then it was a slow process of growing a little bit closer to it and a little bit closer to it. But really, Frankly, you know, it was kind of this art, you know, uh, shadow artist role of being able to ultimately work with filmmakers um, to facilitate uh, the production of their projects, but never really being the creative person myself. And my evolution since then has been one to really kind of embrace um, my own creative voice and the things that I do. It's funny you say that, as you're saying, you know, I used to stop and watch the production, you know, films and all that kind of stuff. I totally understand what you mean. When I was young, all I wanted to do was be an actor from the age of four. And I studied drama for a long period of time. But whenever I used to see someone filming something, I completely did exactly what you did. I used to stop and just be absolutely blown away with watching what what was going on. And And like you, I didn't quite go into what I wanted to. I ended up in PR, so entertainment PR. So it's that you're not quite doing the work but you're beside it, mm-hmm. which I, is, can actually be quite unfulfilling. Right. Uh, and it's you and I have ended up obviously in similar similar paths now. Yeah. So it it is an interesting concept to be there, but not be doing what maybe your heart's true desire is. Yeah, it's safe. You can collect a paycheck and kind of be part of the world without taking the actual risk that the creative people take to do the thing, mm-hmm. right? And it's something, it's it's called being a shadow artist. That term was coined in um, Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, which I highly recommend everybody check out. It's an amazing kind of program and workbook that helps you unlock latent creativity. And reading that in that book was like an epiphany for me. And I realized how much I would dance around the outskirts of something and convince myself that I was participating when I was really somebody on the sidelines taking you know, the safe and easy route. Rich, you have spoken openly about getting into drugs and alcohol, which was obviously 
a time that ended up being fun at first, but ended up, as most do, being quite dark. Can you take us through that? Sure. Um, you know, I was a very studious, diligent kid in high school when all my uh, peers were going out and partying on the weekends and getting into trouble. Uh, I was studying late into the night and waking up ridiculously early to go to swim practice. And I just didn't have time for any of that stuff. And I actually had a lot of judgment about kids who were doing that kind of thing. You know, at that time, I just looked at them like, how could they be wasting their time? And I was very motivated and ambitious um, and never thought that drugs or alcohol would ever be an issue for me. I was repelled by that. But um, when I arrived at college and, you know, was 3,000 miles away from my home, I grew up on the East Coast and ended up going to college in California. Um, it was like something clicked in me, you know, the first time that I, you know, partied and got drunk. And um, it was this unmistakable feeling of suddenly feeling at home with myself in my own body uh, that I can't quite describe, like like a blanket wrapped around you telling you everything is gonna be okay. And I'd never felt that before. And I just thought, I wanna feel like this all the time. And like you said, it started out innocent and fun. You know, I was just relishing in the fact that suddenly I could, you know, go to a party and and you know talk to a girl and crack a joke and you know feel confident in myself. You know, albeit false confidence, um, and it was like that for a long time. But you know, as anybody who struggled with substance abuse problems, you know, can tell you, it's a progressive thing. It's a gradual. It was a gradually progressive thing in my case, and it you know, my drinking career lasted 15 years. Um, it didn't take long before it started to erode my, you know, sense of self and my ambitions. Um, and I was able to kind of chalk, you know, sort of be in denial about whatever wreckage I was creating. But that wreckage started to compile and get more and more serious to the point where, you know, when I was living in Los Angeles, I was, you know, I got two DUIs in a two month period, you know, with ridiculously high blood alcohol rates. I was going to get fired from my job. My parents didn't want anything to do with me. You know, a lot of friends had distanced themselves from me. Like it was very dark. There was nothing sexy or romantic about it. It was kind of just sad, pathetic, and lonely. And that's where, you know, addiction ultimately mm -hmm. takes you. You know, they say, in recovery that it leads to three places, jails, institutions, and death. And, you know, I I went to jail. I ultimately went to an institution, a rehab where I lived for a hundred days and got myself sorted out. But short of that, you know, death was the only thing, you know, left on that, uh, on that list of choices. So I was able to dodge that and establish a, a foundation of sobriety that still to this day is really maintaining that as my number one priority. You had a big trauma that occurred when you were you were going to get mm -hmm. married. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, I assumed that that led to a lot of the the drinking problems as well. The drinking problems were were full blown prior to that. Mm. Uh, so I have to call myself out on that. It's a very long story in order to really understand the the finer points of it. But um, I guess the the highlight reel is that. Um, I got engaged when I was living in San Francisco to a lovely girl and thought that I was in love. I thought that she loved me. I moved down to Los Angeles for this new job. She was meant to be moving down to Los Angeles sometime later to join me. And that's when I got the two DUIs in a row. 
I was looking at jail time. I got my license suspended. All this craziness happened. And that was my first stab at actually trying to get sober. Uh, so when the wedding transpired, I had about six months of sobriety at that time and really thought I was turning my life around. Um, but unbeknownst to me at the time, my fiance had been carrying on with her neighbor, had fallen in love, in love with her neighbor, uh, had not told me this fact and uh, didn't wanna sign the marriage certificate. And on the honeymoon, uh, we still went on a honeymoon. It was, it's a whole crazy story, but I ended up, we ended up breaking up on the honeymoon. I sent her home. Um, I relapsed in Jamaica by myself and have not seen her since. So that was really the lowest point for me. That was truly my bottom. I was emotionally devastated. Everybody that I cared about in the world had attended that wedding ceremony. And it was so horribly embarrassing. Yeah. Like the shame was tremendously profound. Uh, and I just couldn't get it together to get sober at that point. I was in so much pain. I, I almost, I had to drink, you know, to, to numb myself out from the reality of what I had reaped. So it would be some time, I think it was another nine or 10 months before um, I was ready to really truly address it. And that's when I ended up going to a treatment center. But that wedding, you know, experience really rocked me, you know, in, 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 a, in a really terrible and profound way. But now, like many things in my life, most things that I considered bad at the time, I look back at with a tremendous amount of, of gratitude because it was really the catalyst um, that ultimately, you know, led me to a new path. And the life I now get to live likely would not have been possible without that transpiring. So I have nothing but appreciation and gratitude and, and, and love for this, this person um, who, you know, did the best that she could in the situation. I have a lot of compassion for her. You know, it's, it's a funny thing where in life, and it doesn't have to be this way, we end up learning so much from our darkest nights of the soul. And you wonder, is there any, has there, I haven't interviewed them yet, but has there been anyone that didn't have that, hmm. that had the epiphany and got into changing their life one way or another? Why do we as humans have to go through that tragedy to be able to lift ourselves up? I know it's so interesting, right? I mean, change is freely available to all of us in every moment. And every yet moment. for some reason, yeah, we're not <laughs> able to grab onto it until we're in a sufficient amount of pain, enough pain such that the fear of change or the fear of the unknown is, uh, is outweighed by, you know, the unbearable uh, emotions of, of living in, you know, the, your current circumstances. And in my case, yeah, those have been the biggest levers in my growth equation, my growth curve. And certainly, you know, when you're podcasting with a lot of people, everybody has their version of that, you know, as a, as a launch pad into, you know, what they ultimately become. But I think that belies the truth, which is there's millions of people who suffer through things like this and 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 are not able to change. Mm. And those events end up destroying them or, you know, really dragging them down. Uh, but I think what I take away from the whole thing is that, you know, if you are somebody who's going through it, who's having a really hard time right now, if you can appreciate the fact that it's an opportunity and not a tragedy and you know, reflect on it from that perspective rather than from the perspective of a victim, it gives you a chance to actually build something out of that. 
and for those who are not going through it to understand that again, you know, that change that you seek is freely available to to you. You don't have to, you know, self-destruct your entire life in order to rebuild it. It's just a little bit harder that way. That's all. Absolutely. Trauma is different for everybody. When you think trauma, you think, oh, they're involved in a huge car accident or it has to be something huge, but it can be the littlest thing. And and you have the ability, and as we said, you don't even have to go through tra- trauma to be able to to change your life. In, in every day, we have the ability to be able to shift the way we think or or, or change a behavioural pattern or just be a kinder person. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, look, nobody gets out of life alive. And, <laughs> you know, everybody has their trauma. You know, yeah. some people are in denial of it or they don't want to really, you know, peer inward or reflect on things that have happened to them in the past. They compartmentalize and try to just move on. But everybody carries some kind of baggage, you know, and and I think the process of deconstructing that, of having the courage to look inward, which is hard, um, and and you know, finding somebody to talk to and beginning to unpack those tricky emotions and those feelings is super important. And it is courageous and it's difficult and it's messy and it's you know, it's not instantaneous by any stretch of the imagination. But I really think that that is something that we can all do. And I think with that, you can start to construct the building blocks for establishing, you know, a new path or a new narrative about who you are. You know, everybody walks around with a story. Like what's Mm. the story you tell yourself about who you are, whether it's good or it's bad, I promise you it's false because it's made up of a few isolated things that have that have happened to you in your life and your life is made up of billions of events but for some reason our minds fixate on certain things and um give them you know undue importance and I think when you can kind of um understand that and realize that you do have a choice about that narrative and that you can construct a new, healthier narrative for yourself. Uh, that's a very powerful exercise that I'm always encouraging people to do. So Rich, how did you change your life? I mean, you know, again, through pain. I mean, I ha- I've had a couple, you know, pretty bold inflection points. Um, there was that moment I woke up and just realized I couldn't, I just couldn't live my life drinking anymore. And Ended up going to a treatment center, thinking I'd be there for a couple of weeks, and realizing, you know, that that my best thinking had me landed in a mental institution. And as somebody who kind of thinks of themselves as halfway intelligent, that was a, a huge blow to the ego. And I realized that I really needed to get it right uh, because I never wanted to go back to a place like that. So that was a huge thing for me that permanently altered my life. And. I was visited with another such occasion 10 years later because I emerged out of that treatment center and you know was very intent on repairing my life and you know rebuilding everything that I had broken um and I was successful in that regard but I was so um focused on that that I was blind to my health and well-being and 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 really underappreciating the extent to which uh I was pl- I was applying that alcoholic tendency onto things like work and medicating my emotions with food and um, and just not looking after myself. So that all caught up to me shortly before I turned 40 when I had a bit of a health scare, walking up a flight of stairs and had tightness in my chest and you know had to take a break. I was winded, which was really scary. Heart disease runs in my family. My grandfather, who was also a champion swimmer, died very young. 
as a result of a heart attack. And because I'd had that previous moment of getting sober based on a single decision that I made, I had this very palpable sense that I was having yet another similar type experience. And I knew well enough that that these are powerful moments. Mm. If you have the aptitude or the capacity to really jump on them and make something out of them, they can shift your life in huge ways. And so with that awareness, I kind of put that immediately into motion. Like the next day I started this, you know, not the next day, but very shortly thereafter started this like juice cleanse and wanted, you know, which was like detox for food. You know, it's like, I need rehab again, but I need it for lifestyle. Like, what do I do? Well, I'll just, you know, do this juice cleanse and see how that goes. Like I was trying a bunch of different things, but the important thing was that I was taking action and that I was taking actions that were scary for me and very much outside of my comfort zone in order to kind of um, jolt me out of my habituation to this lifestyle so that I could reboot my operating system, start clean and start adopting some new habits. So that was another big one. And then beyond that, it's been a really kind of unsexy gradual process of, you know, making micro changes and adjustments along the way. I mean, the podcast that I do is really an exercise in that and a means of holding myself accountable to continuing, you know, to grow and to iterate and to try new things and to never um, get lulled into this illusion that things are static yeah. because we're always either moving towards a better version of ourselves or regressing back to some, you know, lesser version of ourselves. And the more I remind myself of that, the more I'm able to summon kind of the the courage to you know try these new things and to get out of my comfort zone and test myself. And you know, the endurance sports, the feats that I've done are are you know just one example of that um, that have you know benefited me in tremendous ways. What made you want to change your diet to be a plant-based one? I mean, it wasn't, that was not immediate or overnight. I just knew, you know, I was eating, I was eating a junk food, fast food diet and I had very little energy. I was essentially a couch potato sliding into middle age, you know, with a, with a, with a, you know, nice, you know, tire around the middle section. I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. Um, and I just didn't like how I felt. And when I did that seven day juice cleanse, which was very difficult, the first couple of days, it did feel like I was in rehab, but by the seventh day, I felt tremendous. Mm. I had this incredible resurgence in energy and vitality. And I thought, this is what the way I wanna feel like all the time. Of course, I'm an addict, right? I'm like, I, yeah, I yeah. wanna feel like this all the time. How can I feel like this all the time? And that kind of, catalyze this search for a way of eating that would provide me with that sense of vitality. And I tried a bunch of different things. I tried a vegetarian diet, but that was kind of a junk food vegetarian diet. I dabbled in paleo and some other things. I mean, the diet landscape wasn't quite uh, what it is now. Mm. It, you know, it wasn't, you know, there weren't as many options and people weren't talking about it the way that they talk about it now. But in my own way, in this kind of very self-experimental mode, I was testing things and trying things and, and really none of it was working all that well. And I kind of was running out of gas. Like I was starting to lose faith or hope that I would be able to figure this out and just thought, well, maybe at 40, you're just supposed to feel lousy. Like, I, you know, I'm, maybe I'll just have to live with that. But I couldn't abandon the experiment without at least trying to go 100% plant-based which was pretty radical at the time. This yeah. was like 2006, I think, something like that, 2007. 
Um, uh, and it scared me. It sounded very extreme and radical. Uh, but I thought like, I'll give it a go just so, you know, I can cross it off the list and move on and go back to eating cheeseburgers without the guilt was basically where my head was at. Um, but by taking this on within about seven or 10 days of eating nothing but plants close to their natural state, no processed foods, I felt um, unbelievable. I felt like I did on that seventh day of the juice cleanse and it just clicked with me. I, for some reason, it agreed with me. You know, I know lots of people that it's agreed with as well. And I just thought this is really working. I did not expect it to work. I actually didn't want it to work because it sounded like it was going to be really hard, but I couldn't deny um, just how profound the change was. And with that, you know, I just, I latched onto it. And ever since I've, I've been eating this way and trying to improve and learn and, and, and grow with this lifestyle. So that's how it kind of all happened. And you're a phenomenal athlete and people don't usually put plant-based diets and athletes in the same mm -hmm. realm. You are a role model, a pinup boy for this. How, how do you explain all the energy that you obviously have? Mm. Well, I'm not a I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a scientist. My experience is is my own, uh, and I can relate that in layman's terms. I mean, I think there's a lot of plant based athletes now. Uh, there's much more awareness about this than there was mm. when I was doing it at the time. And there's movies like Game Changers and you know What the Health and Cowspiracy. So, so it's part of the mainstream vernacular in a way that it wasn't back when I was you know beginning this journey. Um, and all I know is that um, you know I've been living this way, eating this way for 14 years at this point. I've just never had a problem building lean muscle mass. My recovery is better. I seem to bounce back more quickly in between workouts. There's this um, kind of absurd focus on protein, like where are you going to get your protein? But I've found that to be quite a red herring. Like if you're eating plant-based foods, you're going to meet your daily protein needs. It's not a problem. Um, but by eating a lot of you know really healthy fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and these foods close to their natural state, you're eating a much more um, sort of uh, nutritionally diverse and nutritionally dense diet. Mm. So your body is actually being sated with what it actually requires in terms of phytonutrients and micronutrients and vitamins and minerals. It's also a very anti-inflammatory diet. And when you're, a, when you're an athlete, that's super important. That means that you're going to be able to bounce back in between workouts more quickly, which will allow you to train harder, train longer, uh, and, and, and render you less likely to get injured or, um, or overtrain. And that translates over time into tremendous performance gains. And I credit the diet with really being unbelievably beneficial in how quickly I was able to go from that couch potato guy into you know fighting weight and fighting shape to tackle some of these crazy ultra endurance races that, that, that I've participated in. It's amazing. I feel like I've spoken to so many people recently about plant-based diets and I... I think it is so different to the way that we used to think about it. And especially I spoke to someone not long ago about spontaneous remissions and people that are very sick going on plant-based diets and how mm. that's absolutely improved their health. So it's just something I, I never would have considered before that I feel is at the forefront of a lot of, a lot of people's voices at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could, you know, 
list hundreds of people that email me that get off their meds that are able to um, heal themselves from all manner of, of chronic lifestyle ailments. They're able to better manage their blood sugar if they're type two diabetic, uh, getting off blood pressure meds, like you name it, it's unbelievable. And these chronic lifestyle diseases are truly you know, the epidemic of our time. They're unnecessarily debilitating and killing millions of people every single year. And the truth is, they are foodborne illnesses. And when mm. you fix the food, you're able to heal. And the body is unbelievable at repairing itself. And, you know, that's been my story. And then beyond that, you know, I got into it for health and, you know, to be frank, vanity reasons. Like I didn't like being fat and I wanted to feel good in my body. But now um, issues like environmental s sustainability and compassion, you know, for the animals have become much uh, more important to me. And when I look at the plant-based lifestyle, it sort of checks all the boxes. It allows you to live more gently and gracefully on the planet, more environmentally sustainably. You're opting out of this cycle that's killing billions of animals every single year. And you're able to sidestep these chronic ailments that, like I said, are you know debilitating way too many people right mm -hmm. now. And you know when you look at it in totality from that perspective, it's baffling to me that more people aren't jumping on board with this, but it is counterintuitive. You know, my whole life I was taught beef is what's for dinner and milk does a body good. And, you know, it wasn't until I removed those things from my plate that I actually started to feel better. And it's confusing, right? Like, Sorry, wait, confusing. I, was, I thought that's what you needed, especially if you're going to be an athlete. So it was only through my first hand direct experience that I was able to kind of, you know, put those myths to bed for myself. But I, you know, I understand and appreciate that it's difficult for somebody who hasn't had that experience to really um, you know, take that to heart and put it into practice. Absolutely. Rich, you talk a lot about the spiritual tools that helped you on your path, and I'm I have no doubt still help you today. When did you realize there was a life that was beyond <laughs> what we can see? Um Probably in, in, I mean, when I went to rehab, that was my first introduction to spiritual principles as guideposts to live your life. Um, prior to that, I was essentially not religious in any regard. I mean, I went to, went to church when I was a kid and my parents put me in Sunday school and it just never connected with me. Like I just could not understand why that was appealing at all. Um, and I really, you know, didn't want anything to do with it. But when I was broken and in this treatment center in rural Oregon, um, you know, I was introduced to the, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was posed the question, Rich, are you a human being having a spiritual experience or a spiritual being having a human experience? And I just remember, you know, like, <laughs> I don't understand the question, let alone the answer. Um, but I've since come to truly believe that we are all, spiritual beings having a human experience and and that you know there's a lot more going on that our limited five senses are unable to fully comprehend and when i um, put spiritual principles first and act in service to other people and you know walk the planet with gratitude and all of these you know very simple things that i try to practice every single day um, that are you know, in contrast to my natural disposition, which is to be selfish and self-seeking and grumpy and irascible and and reclusive, uh, when I act 
you know, in contrast to that, my life is better and everyone else around me is happier. And I just truly believe that um, there's a bigger play going on that perhaps we're not capable with our limited minds of fully understanding, but to me, it's, it's undeniable. I've had a lot of people say to me recently, how's your life? It's, it's flourished so much and you achieved so much in your life. And I say, well, I follow the spiritual principles. Mm-hmm. And I believe that when you do, you are going to be gifted if you live your life in a way, firstly, that is of service. I think that's the most important thing that you can do uh, with an open heart and you are true to, to who you who you, your true nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think the tricky part is figuring out what your true nature is. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a wrestling with the demons and an inner search um, that's very difficult uh, to do. And um, it's kind of hard to put your finger on how exactly you do that. So everybody can be of service, but at the same time, you can't transmit something you haven't got. Mm-hmm. Like you can only be of service on the level of your own, you know, personal well-being and kind of self-actualization. But when you dedicate yourself to that kind of progressive growth, your capacity to serve grows. And I think when you put service first and you're always notching up, you know, how you can serve and the extent to which you serve, um, I just know that my life, you know, tends to expand in lockstep with that. Like the more I serve, you know, the bigger my life becomes, the better my life becomes. And that's very counterintuitive to our materialistic, capitalistic society, mm-hmm. which is all about the limited pie and how am I gonna get mine? And if he, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a win-lose situation. If he wins, then I lose. And it requires you to understand that the universe is infinitely abundant, that, you know, it can be a win-win situation for everybody. And you giving is not taking away from what you will get. And my experience is just that, you know, when you can live in that mindset, um, the things that tend to trip us up end up getting resolved. And you then become available for the greater opportunities that, that present themselves. It's so true. The things that will trip us up end up becoming resolved. Mm-hmm. How, do you have an example of that? Well, a perfect example would be being a busy person and thinking, I don't have time to you know, go to a 12-step meeting and listen to a bunch of drunk people talk and then finding a newcomer and like giving him my phone number and letting him call me and talk to me for an hour. Like I, I barely have time to see my kids, right? Like how am I gonna, like if I do that, I'm not gonna have time to do these other things. My business is gonna suffer. My relationships are gonna suffer. But my experience has been when I make the time to do those things mm. and make those things the priority that all the stuff that I thought I didn't have time for ends up just getting resolved more easily. Like, I don't know why, but that is invariably always the case. So yeah. I think that's a perfect example of how that kind of thing works in a very pragmatic, practical, day-to-day sense for me. How did you, when you left the law, how did you find your purpose? I'm still trying to find it, I think. I mean, I, I don't know that I've, I could define what my purpose is you know, I, I, in, in a very pithy way. Um, it's a super gradual thing. Like I didn't quit being a lawyer until the day my first book was published. Like mm-hmm. I was still 
hanging on to that as a way to make some money and was still terrified of letting it go, even though I was stepping into this new role. Um, And over time, you know, I've kind of crawled and, you know, walked into walls blindly trying to figure out like how I'm, how to, how to, you know, first of all, become more self-actualized and then um, leverage that to be in service to other people while also being able to support my family in a responsible way. And that's a very difficult equation to solve. And it took me like, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, it took me over 10 years, you know, before I had somewhat of a grip on it. Um, So, you know, I'm very empathetic um, with people who don't know what their passion is or their purpose. It's like, most people don't. Like, how are you supposed to know that? It only Mm -hmm. comes through the doing, you know? And I think people who are trying to figure that out beat themselves up because, especially in the kind of self-help universe, it's like, follow your passion and, you know, quit your job and like live on a beach and work (laughs) remotely. And, you know, I I think most people have a heart. They're like, I don't know if I'm scared to do that. And like, is that what I'm supposed to do? And how come I don't know what I'm supposed to do? And it's, you know, then they, they kind of retreat in, in guilt and shame over that. And, you know, I always say like, of course you don't know. Like most, most people don't know. Most people who tell you that they know what their purpose is, they're not necessarily being completely honest with others or with themselves. So mm-hmm. be gentle on yourself. And I think just constant, you know, persistently, you know, commit to the process of self-inquiry and establish a practice that works for you, whether it's journaling or meditation or mindfulness. And you know, understand that these things take, it might take you 10 years. It might be the hardest thing that you ever do, but it is the most worthwhile thing that you will do. And each time you engage in that practice inches you a little bit forward to some clarity around what your unique purpose just might be. And I, and I believe that everybody does have that. Like we all are unique, you know, beings who arrive here on the planet with some blueprint that only we have. And your job as a human being is to discover what that blueprint is, to express it to the fullest extent of your capacity, and then share it for the benefit of other people. Absolutely. Rich, when you left the law, it was a struggle for you. You had a family and you weren't getting the income that you did when you were a lawyer. I know that was a hard time. How, as a father and a husband, also with an ego, did you manage to battle that? Yeah, it was very it was very difficult. And and that all happened like after my book came out. You know, it's like this I write this memoir and it's all about like these hardships and these, you know, obstacles that I've, you know, faced and and ultimately overcome. Um little did I know that, you know, one of the most difficult obstacles that I would face would come after the publication in that book and trying to figure out you know, how to navigate financial dismantlement, you know, and 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 one of the recurring themes in in Finding Ultra is is this mantra of you know when when your heart is true the universe will conspire to support you yes. and i believe that to be a fact i've experienced that in my life i've seen that happen for so many other people um you know in the recovery community and and the like and uh and i just thought well i'm putting this book out i'm going to step outside the law i'm going to have faith and trust in the universe that it will provide because my heart is true and this is my 
offering. And, you know, if I can't make that leap and figure out how to make it work and support my family in this new capacity, then, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I just, I had to believe that that could, that that could happen. And, you know, I thought the, the phone will ring, some opportunity will arise, whether it's, you know, go speak here or do this thing. And the phone didn't ring. And that coincided with, you know, the, the, the market downturn, the recession here in the United States. Um, and we went through a very long period of time where putting food on the table was extremely difficult. And as a head of household, like it's emasculating, mm-hmm. especially, you know, y- you could Google me and read some story and it sounds all inspirational, but we were suffering. You know, it's like, I couldn't pay the bills and I didn't know what we were gonna do. And I really considered just, you know, packing it all in and trying to get a job at a law firm again and just putting all of this stuff in the rear view. Um, and it was Julie really who was like, you can't do that. We've come too far. Like it's gonna work out. Like we're burning in in the flames right now so that we can emerge and hold a more, you know, powerful resonance. And I was like, that's bullshit. <laughs> There's no way. Like, like, I don't know if I believe that anymore. And I was really tested to the fullest capacity of my limits. And now I look back on it and realize that that she was exactly right. Like like, you know, I feel like I was being tested. Like, is your heart really true? Like, well, let's see, you know, let me let me throw this at you. How are you gonna respond to this? And it really brought me to my knees and, and forced me to, you know, double down on, on, on my belief and my practices and my faith. And, and you know, I, I feel like that, you know, I was kind of forged out of that experience and it's made me a better servant as a result but it wasn't easy. Rich, what are the practices that you use then and, and daily? I mean, they come in a variety of forms. I mean, I've alluded to a few of them already. I mean, number one is, is you know, helping another alcoholic achieve sobriety. Mm-hmm. So my, my community, my recovery community is super important and being of service to people in that capacity is absolutely critical. Um, morning meditation, non-negotiable, daily journaling, which I go in and out of. I go, you know, I go in phases with that. But when I'm feeling particularly stuck or or creatively stymied, it's always something that I return to. A daily gratitude list is super important. Um, and then using the, you know, I use, you know, the podcast and the work that I do as an act of service as well. And a lot of that is, is less about the brass tacks of, you know, doing the show and producing it and more about, my motivation and my mindset going into, you know, each conversation. Like, am I doing this for ego gratification? Am I doing this to see how many people are going to listen? Or am I doing this because um, I think this conversation might help people? And the more I can kind of inhabit that perspective, obviously the conversations are going to be better. Um, but uh, keeping my motivations in check is is super important. And, you know, my participation in 12-step really, you know, keeps me right-sized and keeps all of those character defects like the self-seeking and the ego and all of that, you know, at bay. So those are key. And then, you know, getting out into nature and movement, you know, physical training Mm. um, is super important to me. Like I just don't feel grounded or centered unless, you know, I prioritize that on a daily basis. So that's absolutely critical as well. But of course, none of these are important if your, you know, your marriage is, you know, not working out or you don't have a relationship with your kids. So of course, you know, family comes second to to recovery. 
so, you know, that's, uh, you know, obviously super critical. Like if my relationships aren't going well, then nothing else in your life is going to go well either. How, being the busy person you are, have you managed to put your family as a central part of your life? Well, you know, I work from home and we're all quarantined here. So we're around each other, you know, all day. So, you know, that's helpful because I'm with all my kids all the time. And yeah, I'm busy, but I'm also my own boss and I get to make my own schedule mm-hmm. and my own rules, which gives me, you know, this this luxurious um, ability to, um, you know, schedule work around family stuff so that uh, those things, you know, so that my work doesn't overwhelm that. Uh, so that's been very helpful to me and I'm very grateful to be able to do that. I realize that not everybody has that luxury, but, you know, I think, you know, parenting is tricky and, you know, we've got two teenage daughters right now and it's like a challenge, <laughs> you know, like I, I certainly am not somebody who's going to, you know, get on a microphone and, 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 and tell your audience that I have it all figured out. Like I'm learning as I go and I'm certainly far from perfect at all of this, um, but, you know, family dinners and, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, I'm with the kids, all of that is, you know, absolutely, you know, 100% mandatory. And I make sure that that's always a priority. Do you teach your kids the practices that you've learned? It doesn't really work that way. I mean, you know, they don't care what I do. And I'm just, you know, it's like, they don't want to hear it. Like it, it can't come in the form of a lesson in that regard. It has to be through your actions. Like I just think kids, it doesn't matter what you say, it's how you behave. Mm. And, you know, kids are very astute. They pay attention, they know what you're doing. So they model themselves off of your behavior, not your words. And, I, you know, I think like you can't tell your kid, you know, you can't have ice cream if you're going into the freezer and, you know, planting your face in Haagen-Dazs at midnight and thinking they don't know, like they know what you're doing. Like you can't get away with anything with kids. So it's really just, you know, I try to model through the way that I conduct myself. And, you know, kids tend to define themselves in one of two ways. Either they're going to model your behavior out of a desire to covet your favor, or they're going to define themselves in complete opposition to you you know, as a way of, of differentiating themselves and, and trying to figure out, you know, who they are. And I think both of those are healthy practices. And, you know, we have kids that have done each of those things. So being patient with that, being understanding and always being available, I think, to talk is important. But that doesn't mean that, you know, my teenage daughters want to sit down and have heart to hearts with me. Like, you know, if that happens, great. But, you know, I'm not sitting around expecting that to happen. <laughs> it's not my reality right now. What's the most mystical experience that you have ever had? You know, two things, I suppose. I mean, there was one, and I, I tell this story in the book. I was, I was on the tail end of a very long training ride, uh, one that left me so depleted that, you know, I began to hallucinate. And I had this experience of... of drifting above my bike and going into the sky, like this feeling of weightlessness and a sense of, um, you know, connection with the unseen, this sense of oneness with everything that I've never experienced, you know, ever again or, or, or prior to that. I can only, you know, I don't know what ayahuasca is like, but it was my version of that experience that definitely, um, definitely hardened my belief that there's more going on than we're aware or can see. The second would be 
seeing my wife for the first time. Like I first saw her in a yoga class and something inside me just knew that that was going to be the person for me. You know, it didn't make any sense and it would be some time before we were together, but it was a knowing that mm. felt almost like a past life experience. That's the only way that I can describe it. I love that. What's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? I think there's this persistent delusion that intellectually I know is true, but I have a hard time emotionally grasping it that that you know happiness is aligned with some destination. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, when I get to this point, then I'll be happy. When I get this thing, then I'll be happy. Like, I know that's not true. And I know it's about the journey. Um, and yet it's so hard for me to keep that at bay. And the real challenge for me is trying to find more joy in the day-to-day. Like I said, like I'm, you know, I'm a tricky personality and I get grumpy and you know like I'm I can be a workaholic and I'm a perfectionist and all of these things that translate well in terms of the content that I share with the world um but sometimes I miss I often miss the opportunity to experience joy in the process of that because I'm so focused on what I'm doing or I'm performance oriented. And, you know, I think as, you know, I'm 54 now, as I continue to age and as we enter into this new year, that's really, you know, the Mount Rushmore or the Mount Everest that, you know, I would like to to finally summit this year, which is the facility to be able to um, do it for the joy and not for the result to be able to connect with the gratitude and and, and and the gratitude and the joy and getting to do what I get to do, which is like the best job in the world and how amazing it is. Like I have to really practice to connect with that. And I would like that to come a little bit with a little bit more ease than it currently does. I feel like you're speaking about me. <laughs> what is the best advice that you've ever been given? You need to stop drinking and it's the power of surrender, you know, which sounds like defeat or giving up, but which is actually a very courageous thing to do. When you're faced with a conflict or a situation over which you have no control, whether it be your relationship to a substance or a relationship to a human being or something going on at work or with relatives, the ability to release your attachment to outcomes, Mm. I think is been the most powerful practice that I've ever attempted to master. It's given me a sense of um, calmness and grace and empathy um, and clarity. And, you know, I think most of us spend a lot of time trying to control other people or um, chewing on resentments that other people aren't doing what you would like them to do. You know, the amount of energy expended on that kind of stuff is insane. And the truth is it doesn't really ever bear fruit. So why not let it go? You know, the more that we can focus on the very few things that we actually have dominion over, which are truly only our thoughts and our behaviors and let go of everything else, it's called turning over mm. in 12 step. If you can turn it over, uh, I think that it basically clears up so much mental and emotional space and 
leads you towards that place of clarity so you can make better decisions, so you can respond rather than react. Um, and that reaction you know, that we all have when our buttons get pushed invariably leads us in the wrong direction. So what would our lives look like if we were able to be more mindful in how we navigate the world? And I think it's a really powerful practice. It's easy to do, but very difficult to implement. Or I should say it's, e- it's, it's not easy to understand. It's sort of easy to practice. It's very difficult to master. And it's something that I have to constantly work on all the time. But when I can get a little bit ahead of it, my life is always, always so much better. I love that. What is your greatest hope for society today? That we can figure out a viable solution to the greatest existential crisis that we currently face, which is climate change. Um, you know, I look at the world and I don't see the level or the severity of concern that I think we need right now. And we certainly, uh, I certainly don't see the political uh, will required or the, um, the, you know, extreme measures that I think we need to be taking right now in order to get on the right side of this whole thing. So my greatest hope is that we can marshal um, the, the grassroots public support to make those changes and that we can also, you know, compel um, the political will across the globe to collaborate and cooperate to solve this problem because we all share this home and nobody is going to be, you know, immune from what it's going to reap if, if we can't figure it out. What is a life of greatness to you? I, I, I think it would be akin to something I said earlier, which is understanding that we all come into this world with our own unique blueprint to muster the courage to bring expression to that blueprint, to develop that blueprint, to understand what it is that uniquely makes you, you, and to have the courage to bring expression to that in the face of you know, social and economic pressures that wanna put you in a box, I think you know, is a difficult thing to do, but to the extent that you can do that, that's what we're here to do, mm. to figure out what that song is and then to sing it and to sing it for the benefit of others. So it's your unique, like expressing your unique voice and figuring out how to leverage that to help other people and humanity at large is what I think it means to live a great life. Rich Roll, you are a man of deep wisdom. It's been absolutely beautiful holding space with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That was super fun. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. 
listener.